On this week's Big Tech Show, you might not think it could happen to you, but our guest this week explains how a significant number of Irish people may be falling victim to romance frauds online. Victims can feel a misplaced sense of shame. People can blame themselves. They feel embarrassed. And so they don't want to tell family, friends. They don't want to report it to the police. In some cases, of course, the victims are already in relationships. They're married. They have an extra reason to keep that quiet. The Big Tech Show, available on all podcast platforms. Platforms. This is an Irish independent podcast. Leia Healthcare, looking after you always. Proud sponsors of Real Health with Carl Henry. Hello and welcome to Real Health with me, Carl Henry, in association with Leia Healthcare. Folks, before we go any further, the Irish Podcast Awards are coming up and we've been nominated for two podcasts in the health category and also in the Listener's Choice Award. If you have a minute, do me a favour and go on to the irishpodcastawards.ie forward slash vote and vote for Real Health. We would really, really appreciate it. For today's episode, we've done lots of podcasts now to tackle the topic of female health, why women are different to men and how understanding those differences can help boost your wellness. When it comes to exercise, should women really train differently to men? Well, this week, I'm delighted to be joined by sports scientist David Nolan. David is a PhD researcher at DCU and lecturer at Shannon, Shannon Technology. I always get that wrong. So we thought he'd be the perfect person to bust some myths and tell us what we really need to know. David, a very big welcome to the show. How's it going? Not too bad. Thanks very much for having me on, Carol. I'm delighted to have you here. I saw you present recently uh, on this topic, and it was just such an impressive presentation and it was absolutely fascinating our newer listeners would love it so i brought you in to tell us all about female health should women train differently to men let's start there the big question yeah it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting question because we kind of hear these banal statements all the time of women are not small men and they have unique unique um um requirements and that is true in a sense but the fundamental question of do they need to train differently or exercise differently is something that I've been working on through my PhD and there's other research groups working on it. And I suppose first we need to frame the conversation that this is a complex area. When we look at female physiology, female health and exercise, it's a complex area. There's a lot we do know, but there's a lot we still are yet to know because arguably females have been underrepresented in the research to date. If we look across the history of sports science research, about one third of participants have been female. Now, that's mainly in endurance sports. When we go into kind of strength, what we might do in the gym, lift weights, these type of research studies, it's even a lower number. So there's a lot of things we don't know. But fundamentally, before I get to the question of do they need to train differently, we have to first ask, well, is there a difference between males and females? And yes, there is. There's drastically different physiology and anatomy between males and females. And we see this right from birth, essentially. So obviously, you um, at, before birth, there's in males a surge of testosterone and that can cause differences. But then when we undergo puberty, we really see the anatomical and the physiological differences really divide. And what I mean by that, after puberty, when we get to kind of late adolescence and adulthood, males have higher levels of muscle mass. Their bones are stronger and longer. Their tendons are, are stronger. We have different structures. If we look at the hip width of males versus females on average is different. So on average, we have drastic differences between males and females in the physiology. So that then leads to the question, well, do these differences say confer an advantage in sport? And we see with males, males on average are faster, stronger, more powerful just due to these differences in physiology. And then with females, we also have the role of um, the menstrual cycle or maybe hormon hormonal contraceptives. And we can talk about that a little later. But 
these are the type of questions we need to understand in our research. So if we know males and females are different and we see that they perform differently in sports, that may lead us to think, well, then females must need to train differently. When we look at all the research that directly compares males and females following the same program, we see that males and females actually respond quite similarly to, say, resistance training in the gym. Yes, males may grow more absolute muscle and more absolute strength in terms of the actual numbers. But when we look relatively in terms of when we understand that females at baseline are smaller and have lower levels of strength, when we look at the relative percentage increase, females are just as capable of increasing strength and muscle mass at similar rates to males when following resistance training. So we don't tend to see a unique requirement there in terms of to grow muscle or to grow strength. We might see some differences in fatigue. So we tend to see that females are more fatigue resistant, that when we get them to do the same um, kind of challenges, that the fatigue slower compared to males. Now, there's a few caveats to that as well. All the research has been done in kind of isometrics. So what people might know is if you hold a plank or if you do a wall sit um, where you're trying to exert force, but you're not actually moving up and down, that's an isometric contraction. Females are better, uh, are slower to fatigue in that. But when we go into more dynamic stuff, which we'd all kind of would associate with what we normally do in the gym, squats, push-ups, that kind of things, doesn't seem to be a difference there. And it, the question has to be asked, and is the difference due to differences in males and females? Or is it that when we're lifting weights, if the females are lifting lower weights because of lower levels of strength on average, well, then that's globally less stress on the system. So the difference in fatigue might be that males and averages are lifting he heavier. So that that's one area. So when you look at the fatigue, maybe they need to train differently, but that's not well supported. And I think if there was one message we were to get out from early on, it's biological sex, whether you're male or female, is one factor to consider when you're putting together an exercise program, but it's only one of many. I think it would be rather insulting just to say, well, you're female, therefore you must train this way. No, everyone is individual. We wouldn't do that with any male. We wouldn't do that with any individual athlete. We would just look at the individual, where are they weak, what are their goals, and we would treat the individual then. So I suppose for people listening in, if they watch Ireland's Fitness Families, for example, you, the, 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 that wall squat or the hang tough challenge, women generally perform really, mm. really well yes. on those challenges because they're slower to, you know, they're also lighter yes. potentially, but the strength to weight ratio, you know, in theory is there, but they, they fatigue a little bit slower than men do. Yeah, that's potentially one of the mechanisms. And then there is also some research around pain tolerance and females potentially having a better pain tolerance. But again, that's kind of um, contended in the literature then as well. But they're the types of example that we'd see on the fittest family. And sometimes it's when we bring it back to body weight, to relative size, females can perform, outperform males, even though that the male muscle on average might be stronger. As you said, these differences can uh, represent and manifest as females outcompeting males in certain situations. And of course, body composition is another big difference mm. between women and men. Women will naturally store and have more body fat and store or be more prevalent to storing body fat. Yeah, and and that's an important consideration. And obviously, it's it's different for everyone, but women on average or females, I should say, on average are going to probably be 8 to 10% higher body fat than any given male. And that's because there is more um, fat need to be stored within the breast tissue and around the, the um, reproductive organs. But what that means is if we take the average, say, male and female athlete who are would be regarded lean for their sport, 
the athlete, the male athlete might be 10% body fat, where the female athlete might be 15 to 20% body fat. So if the two of those weigh the same body weight, say 70 kg, because of these um, innate differences in body composition, the male athlete will have a higher level of muscle mass compared to the female athletes, even though perceptually they might look at similar levels of leanness. And we know that fat tissue doesn't contract, doesn't allow us to move. It's muscle that allows us to move. So if you have a lower percent body fat and a higher percent of muscle mass, you're going to be able to jump faster or jump higher, run faster and produce more power and force. And that's one of the advantages then as well. So talk to me about, you know, uh, shortening that gap between men and women, is it the type of training that women should do to to, to increase their their, their strength to, and increase their muscle mass, or how do you how do you shorten the gap between the two? Yeah, and I suppose the question is, do we view it as shortening the gap? Is, is that what we want to do? Where we again treat people as an individual? It's 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 a contentious issue, but there's a reason that we divide sport into to male and female, um, and we won't go into that. But this, because obviously then you have the transgender in transgender. terms of where, where, where do they compete? Exactly. And it's people find it very, very contentious. But when you talk about the facts, we, knew, we know that males do have an advantage within sport. And it varies between sport and kind of the lower levels and the endurance sports, maybe 5 to 10% advantage, but it's up to 30, 40%. And you've the research for anyone's interested, Tommy Lundberg of the Karolinski Institute is the researcher there that's kind of looked at this for a long time. So we do see that the, the going through male puberty confers an advantage within sport. But that's kind of the basis of why males and female sport was was separated. So I think it's important not to say, oh, well, how do we narrow the gap and go for equality? Well, no, we need to acknowledge that there are differences and it's not about females trying to catch up with males or males showing their superiority to females. It's it's about bettering yourself and competing within a fair environment against against your peers. But for what I think would actually arguably make a, a big difference is some societal changes in terms of we see, say, for example, the female athletes on average are three times more likely to rupture an ACL. Um, so the, the ligaments around their knees that you often hear um, athletes rupture than a male. And there are several ideas about why that may be. And Q angle, the angle of the hips is potentially one, but that's kind of uh, an old idea that's, that's dissipating differences in these tendon strength, as I talked about, even hormonal concentrations at different times of the cycle may influence it. But I would argue one of the biggest factors is that females are weak compared to males. And I don't say that in a condescending way. What I mean is if we take, say, the average international rugby player or even the average male rugby player, if he comes into a senior setup at 18, 19 years of age, on average, he's probably been in the gym doing structured gym training since 12, 13 years of age, especially if he's come through maybe one of the rugby schools or something like that with a good support system. So they are coming into adulthood having five, six years of really good strength training behind them. Whereas if we take the average female rugby player that maybe comes in to senior setup at 18, 19, we're lucky if they have one to two years. Most of them have minimal to no um, gym experience. So we're expecting them then to go out and play the same games, undergo similar demands of impacts and cutting and everything like this. And it's no wonder that the, the knees aren't strong enough to withstand the demands of the game. And we see these ruptures and we see the same between weak and strong male athletes. Stronger male athletes have lower rates of injuries compared to the weaker male athletes. So that gap is, yes, there are some sex considerations, but I would argue what would make a bigger difference is if that we try to societally change that girls at 12, 13 years of age 
it becomes commonplace for them to be doing structured SNC training, structured resistance training, to be lifting weights, to be doing squats, push-ups, the same as their male counterparts. So we get the same support structures and the same long-term athlete development pathways in place for our female um, athletes that we have for our male athletes. And that is changing, but I think there's a lot more that needs to be done there. Okay, so we're saying, yes, they're different, mm. but in terms of training, they don't necessarily have to train a different way. That women and men, it should be down to goals, uh, fitness levels, where you're starting from, what the end goal is, your endpoints, and all of those things. Chat me around cycles then, menstrual cycles. Mm. How does that impact, or does it impact training? It's a good question because... I think when we talk about female health and female exercise, we nearly always jump to the menstrual cycle. And of course, it is very important to acknowledge. So obviously, throughout the, the menstrual cycle, we see these fluctuating sex hormones, mainly progesterone and estrogen. But there are some other ones that people tend to, to forget about and all the precursors to these hormones. But these change and they have some physiological consequences. Now, there is this idea, you know, when estrogen is high, maybe around ovulation, that it's more anabolic, that you're better able to train hard, you're better able to recover. And then when you're coming towards um, kind of the time around the, the period when we have the low hormone phases, that you're less likely to train hard and you wouldn't recover as well. And that's led to the idea of, well, maybe we should train differently at one part of the phase to the other. Now, there's an interesting dichotomy in the research. So when we use subjective research and we talk to a lot of females, we've done this, um, even some of our own studies out DCU, we survey a lot of athletes and we see that uh, symptoms of the menstrual cycle are highly prevalent. And again, I don't need to list off all the symptoms, but your usual ones, cramps, fatigue, all these type of symptoms that we associate with the menstrual cycle are highly prevalent. And you would, uh, and athletes believe that, yes, it impacts my performance. When we bring large groups of athletes or even just um, people who exercise into the gym and we test them at different phases of the menstrual cycle, we don't seem to have a consistent trend that, yes, one phase of the cycle is superior to the other for strength, power. Now, we must acknowledge that a lot of the research done to date in that area is of poor quality. So yes, that might change in the future when we do better um, quality studies. But we have this di di dichotomy that females say that yes, the menstrual cycle is an issue. I feel it affects my performance. When we measure it in the lab objectively, it doesn't. Now, what I draw from that and what people forget to acknowledge, it's highly individual. So anyone who is listening, especially females, well, particularly females, I don't need to tell them that every female is different in their cycle. So we have huge what we call inter and intra-individual differences. And what I mean by that, inter-individual differences, every female is different to every other female. Some females have a lot of symptoms. Some have no symptoms at all and don't feel difference. Some feel really great at one part of the menstrual cycle. Some feel terrible at the other. Others don't feel anything at all, no difference. So that's inter-individual between differences. But we also have intra or cycle-to-cycle -cycle variations where one month, they're feeling great. Next month, it could have a load of symptoms. So we have a huge degree of variation between individuals and between cycles. So what that means in research, when we bring a big group of people in the lab and we try to find average differences, there's too much variation going on. So I can't say, well, on average, the average woman or the average female will experience this because there's so much variation. So what does it mean? It means that we can't give blanket recommendations. And anyone who's saying that because you're female, you should train this way in the follicular phase and this way in the luteal. 
you can't say that. We don't have the evidence and science to say that. What we can say is we acknowledge that for a certain proportion of people, yes, there is uh, an effect and you may need to maybe adjust your training. But what's the best thing you can do is track your menstrual cycle, preferably over a long period of time, three to six months minimum, and try to identify patterns. And if there's a consistent pattern of you notice, well, around ovulation, I always feel great. A couple of days out from my period, I have bad PMS. It affects my training. Then implement individual coping strategies. If you identify that my menstrual cycle doesn't really affect my performance at all. So should I change my cycle or tra training just because potentially the science says no. You've identified that you as the individual. You're one of those people that arguably you could say lucky that has minimal symptomology because of their, their menstrual cycle. So that's something that has been acknowledged. You can't do a blanket recommendation. Now, we may in the future show that phase-based training, as it's called, adjusting training around the menstrual cycle is superior. And there's certain sporting organizations that looks trendy now and there's companies trying to sell this. I can say conclusively that the experts in the field would conclude at the moment there are no evidence-based scientifically backed recommendations we can make for either nutrition or um, exercise recommendations around the menstrual cycle that can be a heuristic or a blanket recommendation. We can only look at individual cases. And then I suppose the, the other side to that coin that people don't talk about is hormonal contraceptives and oral contraceptives because we always talk about the menstrual cycle, but we forget that roughly 50% of the population, female population, um, that are, I should say, premenopausal, um, are on hormonal contraceptives. And we see even potentially higher prevalence in athletes. So the oral contraceptive user, if we talk about, say, the menstrual cycle as a hormonal profile, so a female's hormonal profile, well, you look across all females, oral contraceptives are the second most common hormonal profile you see. And these cause um, have some ramifications as well, because when you take, if we take kind of the most, what we argue is the common one that people take now, which would be a, a second generation monophasic um, pill, which most people um, you take for 21 days in either seven days off or just seven sugar pills, placebo pills. That's what most people will take. And you take your pill free days and some people don't, but that's what they prescribe you should do. Well, essentially, you're putting in there a synthetic form of estrogen and then a progestin along in there that mimics the um, the endogenous or the natural hormones we produce in the body. You ingest those at a certain level every day, and it basically downregulates your endogenous, what you naturally produce of estrogen progesterone. And then this causes, obviously, has contraceptive effects. Um, but I, I think we should acknowledge that people take oral contraceptives for a multitude of reasons. Contraception is one, but there are many reasons. It might be to alleviate symptoms of the menstrual cycle, might be to control the period that if you're an athlete, you prefer that you know when you, you're going to have your, um, it's it's not the period when it's uh, on those pill-free days, it's a withdrawal bleed. It's not actual uh, a period. Just people see the, those as synonymous and think, well, on my pill-free days, I bleed. Therefore, I've no menstrual dysfunction. That is a common um, mistake to make. It's just a bleed. It is not a period, so it potentially could mask menstrual dysfunction if there was something underlying there. But again, people then have this idea of, we see the naturalistic fallacy. People think, oh, well, it's hormones that you're taking into the body. It can't be good for you. We don't have long-term data around chronic use of oral contraception, so we can't say if it's good or bad long-term. Um, we do know that there are a lot of positive effects from it, but when we look at exercise, 
we don't tend to see that much effect of oral contraceptive use because people think, well, if you have the natural hormones going, you can get the benefits of that and you get better goals achieved or adaptations. But that doesn't seem to be the case. The evidence, again, is poor. We need much, much better evidence in this area. But we see that oral contraceptive users may present a slightly blunted response and adaptation. Now, it's very trivial, as in that's someone might gain a little bit less strength, might gain a little bit less muscle being on contraceptives compared to um, the, I won't say normal, but the human rate, just a naturally occurring menstrual cycle. But that's a trivial amount. If you're an elite athlete, yes, it makes a difference. For the vast population, it's so trivial that practically it's, it's irrelevant. So again, because the studies are so variable and this the, the difference is so trivial, our recommendation, again, is treat the individual. Because you could say, well, it makes, if you take an oral contraceptive, say, even if I have an elite athlete, you might say, well, it'll you might blunt your muscle growth slightly. But if we take it off, if we take you off contraceptives and you're someone that gets debilitating symptoms in menstrual cycle, well, then there's a week every month you're probably not going to be able to train. You're going to gain a lot less muscle and strength because of those symptoms of your naturally occurring menstrual cycle compared to the slightly blunted um, oral contraceptive use. So, again, it's about treating the individual. But what we see is oral contraceptives, to sum it up, may slightly blunt adaptation. But then across the phase doesn't seem to be a difference between pill days versus non-pill days, between active and non-active pill days. So again, if you use oral contraceptives, perfectly fine for exercise, might slightly blunt it, but again, you need to treat the ind individual there in that situation. Folks, you're listening to Real Health with me, Carl Henry, in association with Leia Healthcare. So David, what you're really saying is get to know your body. Mm. That, you know, there, there, no one can say to you women in terms of how you react and how your body reacts to the menstrual cycle and all of that and get to, and to track your training and track your menstrual cycle and try and match the two together over a period of three to six months and get to know you I, I think and so. build your training program or adapt it if needs be around how you react. That, that has to be because I think we're getting more people that are very vocal around, you know, female sex differences in terms of, um, doing the best for females in terms of menstrual cycle and contraceptives and that's brilliant we need people to be more vocal but a little bit of knowledge is dangerous in a lot of cases and the problem we're having and it's I think it's almost insulting we have people reading the textbook um, definition or the textbook of this is a menstrual cycle these are what the hormones do and like it's 28 day cycle again that's on average across the population we class a normal menstrual cycle as anywhere from 21 to 35 days. And that varies again month to month with the, the female. So I find it nearly insulting if someone comes along and say, and there you have an individual in front of you is saying, well, actually, I don't find that my period affects me or I don't find around ovulation that I am much better. And they say, well, hold on. No, no. Look, it's a textbook. You're a female. Therefore, you know, at ovulation, we know your estrogen is high. Therefore, you must be better. That, I think, is insulting. We need to treat the individual, understand that female athletes and females in general, they're not textbooks. They're not lab rats that just follow um, this nice homogeneous um, profile and every month is the same. We treat the individual in front of us. We learn about them. We help them learn their body, their individual cycle or the effect of contraceptives and their form of contraceptive for them. And then we base the training. And again, just because they're female, that doesn't mean that all we should focus on is the reproductive side of stuff. That is one factor. 
among, among many factors that we need to consider when we're helping someone to exercise, be healthier and achieve their, their health goals. So we've covered a lot of ground in a very short <laughs> space of time, which is, you know, when you get going, you flow, which is fabulous. But I'm going to bring it back to the initial question that we started with just to finish, which is should women train differently to men? No, based upon current evidence, I don't think there's a strong rationale to say that women should do different forms of exercise to men. We treat the individual and we acknowledge that in the future, yes, we may um, have a different opinion as the science moves on and learns more. But again, we just need to encourage everyone to exercise more probably. And especially I have a bias towards strength training. I could talk all day about that. We need more females lifting and that's postmenopausal, older women, younger women, and everyone lift. across the board just needs to lift. So I don't want a situation where a woman or a female walks into a gym. It's like we're all guilty of they're doing exercise and it's very difficult for a lot of people to get themselves just to walk into the gym, mm -hmm. do that exercise. And then all of a sudden someone comes over very arrogant. It's like, oh, well, you know, you're a woman. So therefore you're actually training wrong. So instead of encouraging them to engage in a healthy practice, you're already coming in a negative way and telling them they're doing it wrong and they need to do it a different way. Just once they're exercising, engaging in healthy practices, just be encouraging of it. David, great to see you and great to have you in. If people want to follow you online, I do. Where can they follow you? So on Instagram, it's Synapse Performance. So a bit of a, a mouthful, S-Y-N-A-P-S-E, Performance, you'll find me. That's the same across most social medias and the website. And then if you Google David Nolan, um, health or strength afterwards, you'll find that there's some handsome actors and swimmers with <laughs> the same namesake. So I don't outrank them on Google just yet, but you'll find me along there. David, thank you so much for coming in. Folks, that is it for another episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry, in association with Leia Healthcare. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to follow and rate and review. Every single one of those helps, so please do so. We shall see you next week for more Real Health. See you then. Leia Healthcare, looking after you always. Proud sponsors of Real Health with Carl Henry.